Uh, Linda, you can open whenever, uh, if you would, and um, I'm going to share this. Yeah, I just got to get into your other page. Heavenly Father, we just might thank you, Lord, that you made this appointment time, Lord God, again, that you gave your son a great message to speak to the people. Lord God, we ask you to take it from the far to the east, to the south, to the west, Lord, that you will have your way in this forecast. I ask you the protection. I ask you whoever needs to ask questions, they do it in gentleness and in, and in a loving way. When they don't understand that they, you know, they do it in a loving way and they can come on Zoom or on Facebook and make comments, Lord God. Lord God, we just might bless your son brutally and pour favour upon him, Lord God, that when he speaks, you know, and when he doesn't even speak, Lord God, that he has that, you know, as well. And Lord God, I even ask you, Heavenly Father, that people will realise how much your son is ordained through you that they will sow seeds into him as well, because it is a good soil that they are putting into. Because he is doing the kingdom 24. Um, he does it for you. He doesn't work no more. He's doing it. He's doing it for you, Lord. He's a full-time minister, Lord God. Even off, offline, he's a full-time minister. He doesn't work no more, people. that he, The Lord's given him this... So, Lord, I ask you, bring the financial blessings upon them, that they even find a nice home. And everyone start praying for him as well and for, start praying for his family as well, that they do get comfortable home because they have a really very close of a deadline. And, Lord God, we bless those books, Lord God, that he's writing that people will understand and they will buy him, Lord God. And Lord, when he's writing the second book, oh, no, well, it's actually not the second book, but when he's writing the other book, Lord God, that people will sow. And they will sow and they went, wow. And it's great blessing upon them as well. And Lord, we just want to thank you that he, he is a web um, designer, Lord, that people can come and, and get their websites. People can get their books done through through him as well. And here's our and his other gifts, Lord God. And I we we just want to bless that class that he's having this Saturday, Lord God, this master class that he that you have given him as well to pour into your children. That the, this class gets blessed, Lord God. Bring them, Lord God, bring them in. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There we go. I had to get unmute. I was saying amen, amen, amen. And then I said, well, I'm muted. Um, we're going to pick up today. Um, we're going to hit a few different places in the scriptures. I want to start today in Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going to be talking about the straight gate. And what does that actually mean? And why is that so fundamentally, extremely important? So those of you who begin to tune in, um, if you will, share this on your wall. I appreciate it. And um, 
get those algorithms up and see if we can um, get this this room filled up. And, you know, people know we're talking usually around this time of the day and they start coming on in. Um, probably that way they don't have to hear me ramble for the first 15, 20 minutes every time I start to teach. But we're going to talk about the straight gate. And I want to start with the end game first. So what I, what I mean by that is that the will of God, what his will is and what that looks like and what that's going to ultimately look like at the end of all things. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that per se. Rather, we're going to get a mental image of what end game Christian end game is or God's end game, the, the finality of all things. We're going to get an idea, a picture, an image, and then we're going to ask the question, how does this happen? What do we do in order to help this along? So that ultimately, beloved, that as sons and daughters of God, we have to know that we are not just haphazardly going about hoping that something's going to happen. Rather, we have clear instructions, clear insight, clear teachings that gives us um, a full plethora of end game, not end times, end game situations or end game scenarios of what is going to look like in the finality or the consummation of the kingdom. When I say the finality or the consummation of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, what I mean by that is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he received the promised kingdom in the enthronement. This is Acts 2, that David's throne, which was promised to David's greater son, not Solomon, but the promise was to Jesus, that in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus receives the throne of David, and he takes it, or it is elevated to the highest of the heavens. So Jesus is in the heavens, um, which is not distance, but rather perspective, and seated at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit is poured out on him and through us. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son to the church. That is the full measure of the kingdom of God. Now think about it like this. The kingdom of heaven is not in meat and drink, but it is in righteousness, peace. Think about this. The kingdom of heaven is in. It's in. It is in. I in. In righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God looks like righteousness. The kingdom of heaven looks like peace. And peace, when you take that even into the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew or shalom. It doesn't just mean free from anxiety, though that is absolutely included. It's, it's inclusive of all things that's necessary that we can have peace, rest, um, and not have anxiety, not have anything lacking, not have anything broken, not have anything missing. So he is then the prince. Jesus is the prince of peace. Of the increase of his Isaiah 9, of the increase of the Messiah, Jesus, the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Now, if I tell you that, let's say we all sat down together, everybody watching, we sat down, we're watching a movie. And then we got halfway through the movie and it's really good. 
And then I hit the pause button. I tell everybody to come back in 2000 years and we'll finish the movie then. Um, no, that's not how that's, that's not watching something to the end. That's not seeing something played out until it is complete. Jesus doesn't hit the pause button. Uh, despite the premillennial dispensational heresy that has been so ripe in the 20, 19th, 20th, and 21st century church, especially of the Americas, United States, um, premillennial dispensationalism would teach you that there is a um, there is a pause button on God's prophetic time clock, and he pauses it after the resurrection, and he's going to unpause it when he comes back to rapture the church. Hogwash. It's foolish. It's foolish. It is not it is not orthodox. It has nothing to do with the tradition, the capital T, or the faith handed down once and for all. Uh, you're not going to find this in church history. This is a relatively new doctrine that was um, established in the Christian church around the same time Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, the three heads of the satanic threefold cord of deception and heresy and even blasphemy that came in the 19th century is the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the dispensational Christian theology. It's the premillennial dispensational rapture teaching. So if the increase of his government and peace knows no end, that means it's an ever advancing and ever increasing and ever filling, F-I-L-L-I-N-G, filling kingdom. It is as leaven that leavens into the lump until the whole lump is filled with the leaven. The earth is the lump of dough and the leaven is the kingdom of God. So we will be here until the kingdom of God has leavened all things. So this is uh, the increase of his government and his peace. There'll be no end. So there's no end to this. So what we have to understand, beloved, is that the end game must always be in the um, forefront here of our of our minds so that everything we do, we don't do for ourselves as individuals, but we do for each other in light of what we're together, in light of together what we're doing for God in order to complete and um, work out what he has called us to do in the earth. So this is where we're going. So we're going to go to Isaiah 2, and we're going to first look at the end game of all things. Then we're going to talk about what does it take for this to happen. Um, Isaiah 2, we'll just start at verse 1. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Watch verse 2. Now it shall come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. So stop right there for a moment. When we talk about mountains in prophetic language, in um, even apocalyptic language, allegory, metaphor, kingdoms are front and center to, um, or synonymously front and center with um, kingdoms, mountains and kingdoms. Mountains are kingdoms, kingdoms are mountains in typology. So when we read that the mountain of God, we're talking about the kingdom of God. What is this mountain? What is it called? What is its name? We know that according to Hebrews chapter 12, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of God. This is the city that Abraham was looking to have foundations, whose author and builder was God. So it's not a natural physical kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom that we have come to made up of every tongue, tribe, and culture. We are people who have come out of every single 
different type of people group on the planet into one family and that one family makes us brothers and sisters indeed before our natural earthly brothers and sisters before our natural moms and dads we are true brothers and sisters not born of the flesh but born of the spirit so we have to learn how to begin to walk this journey keeping in mind who each other is in light of the mystery that's unfolding in christ so we have to see each other by the spirit discern each other by the spirit not according to the flesh i don't just mean discern each other in our cliques or our groups rather i'm talking about learning how to judge and discern each other based upon all of the people that we see on this planet it's very easy for us to look at somebody that doesn't agree with us and point out all of the things that you see in them the specks in their eyes yet we have not learned that there's still a beam in our eye if we still look at people in a way that is pointing out their flaws or faults their failures their insecurities their weaknesses it's simple to see that it doesn't take a prophet to point out the dirt the sin it takes a prophetic company let me say that again for you can get this it takes a prophetic company of believers to be able to look at the most what we would deem to be the most scourly lowly depraved human being and say you know what i see the christ in that person too this is the game changer because you cannot pray or love your enemies if you can't see christ in them it becomes easy to love your enemies when you see Christ in them, because if you can love Christ and you love Christ, then you learn to love each other because you can see Christ in them. And so you're not saying you love the things about them that are negative, but you love them all the same because Christ loves them and Christ has ransomed them from their sin. He has reconciled them to God, even if they are not yet converted. So it becomes our responsibility to teach people, to show people that they're not all bad. It's to teach people, to show people that they're not alone. It's to teach people and to show people that they are valued, that they are important, that they are loved, that they are precious, that they are beautiful, that they have purpose, that they have talents, that there is something that they have that is going to um, help the rest of humanity in our journey together. Every single person has beautiful gifts. Every single person has a beautiful um, image or imprint of the divine essence of God on and in their lives. But if we can't see God in them, we can't identify the God imprint, the God stamp that's in them, the mirrored reflection, the fact that Jesus Christ went to the deepest, lowest depths of their abyss and darkness and turned it inside out. And it is our responsibility to be able to let men and women see Christ in us, not just because of what we say, but because of our actions, because of the lifestyle that we live. Many people in the Pentecostal, Charismatic, Evangelical, Protestant churches, I don't care if you're Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist, we don't like this because we have taken on an idea concerning Christianity that everything deals with simply believing without the fact that action has always been required because if we truly believe in something we live according to the set of standards in that belief system 
But if we think that, well, I don't have, you know, listen, okay, there's a difference in being saved so that you can get sorted out in God after you pass from this earth, after you die. And there's a difference in learning how to live as a God-like or Christ-like being while you're still in the earth. One reaps rewards, one suffers to fire judgment that will burn up everything that's wood, hay, and stubble. And ultimately, the soul can be preserved and saved. But eternal reward, beloved, eternal reward should be something that we should be thinking about. Because eternal reward means that it is an ongoing, everlasting reward for what you have done in your present suffering in this earth. That what you have suffered, what you have laid down, your heart towards the whole situation. Not allowing your heart to become hardened and cold. Not allowing to, not allowing unforgiveness to take deep seed in your heart. Not allowing you to give into the lies of abandonment abandonment and the lies of rejection just because we may have experienced abandonment and rejection from people that have hurt us. We have to find that our strength, our stability, our light in our life is in the one who died and rose again so that we are not trying to be affirmed by each other, though affirmation towards each other is beautiful and it's necessary. But if you are not being affirmed by people, if there are people who are just not able to see the God in you because they're not there yet, and they may even talk about you in ways that is absolutely contrary to who you actually are, you don't allow that to shape or mold your identity. You must know that your identity is shaped and it's molded, is formed. The spiritual formation comes from first, from entry through cruciformation, spiritual formation into glorification. This happens because we begin to see him and we allow him, Jesus, to identify us. Remember what Matthew 16 teaches us. It is a twofold question that I have taught you over and over again. That is the most important questions you'll ever, ever allow the Lord to ask you. Who do men... Number one, who do men say that I am? And number two, who do you say that he is? Because the contrast here is this, that you are not allowed to identify him based upon what you've heard others say. Even if what others have said is correct, you learn from them, you listen, but you have to learn how to see him on your own. Because though you know we help you see him, that's the point of teaching and preaching the gospel. It's the point of the Holy Spirit operation. How do you see him? Well, that's the beautiful work of Holy Spirit that lives in your life. It is Holy Spirit's responsibility to show you who Jesus is. But if we think that Holy Spirit is only interested in prophesying about politics or prophesying about houses and cars, things we all need. Heck, my car is half, is, I don't know, it still gets up and down the road, but it's it's old. And we're in the process of having to move in about 22 days or so. We got to move. Uh, we have no choice. And um, it was out of the blue. And we are not ready to move. Financially, we're not ready. We don't know where to go yet, location-wise. But we have to trust God because based upon His righteousness, based upon His goodness, based upon His gracious mercy and kind, um, His tender mercies and His, His kind, loving nature, that it's going to be okay. It really will be okay. And we trust him through the process. So we have to learn how to become much more Christ-like. Why? Because there is an end game. And that end game does not come about because people go to church on Sunday. 
That process comes about because people have learned how to become the Christ-like ones Monday through Sunday. That means that every day of our life, we live a life that looks like Christ. Now, are there benefits? Well, we're not doing this for benefits. Well, of course there's benefits. There is the promise of glorification. There's a promise, that, and I'm not talking about just when you go to heaven. That's the misrepresentation of the gospel. Because we have turned the gospel of Jesus Christ into something that it's not. We have made it into a sport, a a a, a morphed, um, a morph a morphed, um, mutated version of its original. We have turned the gospel into a Sunday, Wednesday night, and a Sunday thing. But yet we don't typically always care about people any other time of the week because we get to be now. I'm not talking to everybody. You gotta, you know who you are, where you are with the Lord. But in generally speaking, we can just look at the landscape of the 21st century church and know that it doesn't look anything like what Christ had intended. It does not look like the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. It doesn't look like a church that has authentic apostolic authority that can officiate um, the and even allow or uh, open up the mysteries of the kingdom for all to come participate at the Lord's table so that in sacramentology we worship and we begin to know each other not as a individual but as a unified one collective body of Christ that is fitly joined together and every joint supplies life to the other joint if you feel lifeless perhaps you're not connected if you feel like you don't know what it is to experience the true the true uh, presence of god learn how to operate in a body of believers so that you are not alone because you were never meant to be all alone you are always meant to be part of a family and that family is the church and the church is the amen back to the message to the commandments and to the announcements that Jesus Christ is King and he's Lord of all his creation. So we're on a journey and the end game looks like this. Let's look at verse two again, Isaiah chapter two. Now it shall come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. So in the last days, um, there will be, when we talk about the last day, we're talking about the last days of, of, of history in the sense of the Aeon Aeonios, or the age of the ages, which is the, the fullness of chronology from the beginning to the eschaton or the eschatology, the end, the end of all things. When Christ consummates his kingdom, the kingdom was inaugurated in the resurrection. It will be consummated in his final appearing. So there is a final appearing, final judgment. There is um, the resurrection of the dead, the blessed hope. These things are absolutely in the front and center of all things of our of our teaching and our preaching, the stability of our conversation. This is what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 in his creedal confession. Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ buried, Jesus Christ resurrected according to the scriptures. This is the confession of our faith. But the confession of our faith may have us heaven bound, if we want to talk that way, but does it have us earth ready to be the Christ-like ones now? Because we have substituted, we have traded the gospel for something that's cheap, something that's watered down, bastardized, 
truncated, weakened, illegitimate, and without power for everyday living. We are in such a mad rush every single day that many of us can even, if we'll be honest, we can say whatever your age is right now, we can look back and say, wow, I wish I would have slowed down and enjoyed those moments. You know, I've heard it said that nobody upon their deathbed will ever, um, in their last words, the last things they say, will never say, man, I wish I would have bought that Mercedes when I had a chance. No, they wish they would have been able to enjoy the moments they had with the people they love. Their regrets may be that they didn't make things right with somebody they loved. Their regrets, see, your focus, your perspective changes when death is on the forefront or on the horizon. So death itself has been destroyed in the sense that Jesus trampled down death through his death. That simply means he took the sting out of it. He took the, he took the fear of punishment out of it. He took the condemnation out of death. It's not that we don't transition, but death for us now is the following, the same following of what, you know, is the following Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, because he died, buried, descended, conquered his conquest of hell. He tramples down. He makes a public public spectacle of demons and principalities and powers. He triumphed over them, triumphed permanently. Definitively, he triumphed over them in his cross so that when he rises again, we now have the promise of resurrection because in a very mystical sense, we died with him. We were buried with him. We were resurrected with him. We were enthroned with him. So we're seated in heavenly places of Christ Jesus, which means that when you put off this earth suit, you're not having to go anywhere. You become aware of where you have already been positioned in the beloved son of God. But we're on a journey. So, okay, let's look at Endgame here. So, um, the in the at, by the end of the things, the last days, the mountain of God's house, or the kingdom of God, is going to grow. It's going to continue to fill all things until it becomes the chief of all the other mountains. This is the kingdoms of this world. Rather today, if we want to call that media, technology, arts and entertainment, education, um, if we want to call it, if we want to call it family. If we want to call it, whatever we want to label the seven mountains or whatever mountains or however many mountains there are, many kings, or even nations, these are all going to be in the shadow. This is, I'm speaking metaphorically here, but it is going to be overshadowed by Zion. Zion will grow and expand until it fills all things. You'll find this in Ephesians chapter 4, that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work in the ministry, until we all come into the unity of the faith, into a perfect man, human, into a perfect human. We are becoming human. We are in the journey of becoming human. But it's difficult for us to adopt the authentic gospel when we've been presented a gospel that just tells us how to live it tells us what to do rules and regulations puts on us that you can you're part of our church this is what we believe these are our bylaws do this don't do that pay your tithes on one uh, sunday give an offering on wednesday night you do whatever else you want to do you're good no you're not that's not the gospel that's not authentic ecclesiology what does that mean the way the church is to function the way the church is to operate apostles true apostles must be able to discern the Lord's body, structure life, the church life, the life of the church, and to structure doctrine. And really to begin to say, what is what is the preeminent 
the most important um, thing we're supposed to be talking about right now. What is necessary? Where are we right now in the course of the prophetic history of the church? I'm going to say that. I'm going to ask that question again, guys. Where are we right now in the course of the prophetic history of the church so that we can discern the seasons and the times like the sons of Issachar so that we can know what Israel ought to do, what the church ought to do? Because right now we got 50,000 denominations with 50,000 opinions, and opinions are not going to get it done. Division must be executed in the light of the finished work of the cross. I refuse, I 1 million, 100 million percent, I refuse to partake and participate in another fraction or denomination because it is not the will of God. I'm not saying God has not used your denominations. I'm not saying God hasn't used. Yes, he has. God is because a lot of men have been caught up in denominations, but their heart was for unity, but yet they're bound by the regulations of their denomination. So God's given revivals, given he's poured out his spirit in pockets and companies of people. You can take um you could take Brownsville. I mean, Brown God moved in Brownsville. He did many things. But I live close to Pensacola and it's not been that long ago that I drove by Brownsville Assembly of God and the whole entire region is overgrown with darkness. I mean, it's not good. Poverty has ridden the streets. Drug abuse and prostitution is all around where that facility is. So whatever happened in Brownsville, though it was beautiful, did not carry the longevity to transform the culture around it. Because we are always trying to get people in the building, but we're not allowing the move of God to move beyond. True revival should change cities and regions because it is the lost that needs to be revived, not the sons and daughters of God. We need renewal. We need, um, even at times, we need to be reformed. What we don't need to be revived, revival deals with one who is dead. So we do need revival, but revival should be for the sake of evangelism and missionary work. But renewal should be the ongoing state of the what we would call the um, apocastasis. That is the restoration of the believer so that we are being conformed daily. We are being changed, transformed daily into the unfolding, beautiful, beautiful image of the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. we we'll keep on reading here in Isaiah 2. Um, that the mountain house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. Okay. Um, let me see if I can get Victor muted here. There we go. So <laughs> I love the cat. Uh, so what we're looking at is, is not a takeover. This is the era of Rush Dooney, David Chilton, Kenneth Gentry, R.C. Sprawl, a lot of our Reformed brothers. Their idea of having an optimistic or victorious end-time view, eschatology, a victorious end-time view, looks much more like the reestablishment of the Ten Commandments. Listen, people are people get worked up because the Ten Commandments get taken down over courthouses, and we fight for that. Beloved, I want to hint at the idea that your passion for the Ten Commandments in the courthouse may be misrepresented or misplaced it may be it just may be a misplaced loyalty because the ten commandments is not 
the law of the kingdom. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death, according to Paul, is a ministry of condemnation and is a ministry of death. Why? Because the men could not live up to it. So Paul would say when the law came, though it's holy, it's perfect, but it's unable for us to keep it. So when the law came, sin revived and I died. So in other words, sin that was already, Paul said sin that was already working in me took an occasion to offend me and kill me the moment I saw the law. Because when I saw the law, I saw what I was supposed to be. And then I was able to see what I really am. And what I am right now doesn't look anything like the law. So therefore, sin has condemned me and I have died. So therefore, it is a ministry of condemnation, condemns you. It's a ministry of death. It kills you. But the law of the Spirit is the law of life. And that life is found only in the way, truth, the life. I am. Ego I me. I am the way, the truth, the life. Vera, veritas, verita. What does that mean? The way, the truth, the life. But yet we seem to gravitate much more to strong motivational teachings today and people who will tell you what you need to do to get your breakthrough, your blessing, um, 10 steps to financial gain, harvest. What is this that we are accepting to be the gospel? What is this that has brought us so far away from the simplicity of the life that we share together in Jesus Christ. And when I say the simplicity, doesn't mean there's no complexity. I'm not saying there's no complexity in the walk of the Christian. I'm saying that the entrance should be simple. It is to follow Jesus and to do what he does, to say what he says, to be like him to the best of our laid down cruciform life so that ongoing we are conformed into his image why because the cruciformed life or it is entering into cruciformation brings us now to the place of spiritual formation now often spiritual formation beloved it happens in the place of darkness the place of being hidden the place of hiding it's a place of secret See, cruciformation takes you, this is Jesus, this is the example, the cross, Jesus dies, he's buried. Cruciformation, formation is the place of the cocoon. It is the place where all you are is being dissolved into nothing so that what you're becoming doesn't look like who you used to be, but you can say that I am no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. I am now a slave to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it's one thing to quote, well, bless God, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to understand it because memori memorization of scriptures is not the key to understanding scriptures. It may be a good place to start for some of us. And this, I started that way. It's great that I did because the memorization of scriptures is simply all that Paul did. Saul of Tarsus had them memorized. He followed it to the T. He understood the Torah. He understood the law. He understood the commandments. But when he was persecuting the church and on the road to Damascus, he had his encounter. The light shined and he was afraid. Who are you, Lord? He knew it was the Lord, but he didn't know who the Lord was because everything he thought he knew about the Lord was completely and totally um, 
annihilated in that moment. And he said, I don't know anything. I know it's the Lord, but who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Saul, Paul, calls him Paul now. And Paul goes for three or four years into the mountains of Arabia. And he there he sorts through that one encounter so that all of the scriptures he had memorized, he's able to look at them now through the lens of Jesus, the Christocentric lens, Christ-centeredness. He had to learn to see Christ within the scriptures because scriptures only have life when you see christ in them if you see the scriptures outside of christ you reap upon yourself death death is the outcome of the bible outside of christ in christ you do not look to find the death and the condemnation that was in the law but rather you now begin to find the life of the spirit showing us jesus christ within genesis to malachi so that we now come out with a different perspective everything has changed everything is now different but yet if we call ourselves believers in the one the way the truth the life if we say that jesus is the one that we've given our lives to and we've surrendered to him perhaps we need to take an evaluation of ourselves and ask ourselves judge yourself as what the scriptures teaches new testament judge yourself to see if you be in the faith because we don't for some reason actually know what that means to say well i judge myself and i still believe god i believe in god i believe in god well who's god because if that's all you if you call him god who is that who is that to you who because oftentimes what that means we 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 say we we claim we believe in the trinity we claim we believe in father son and spirit but we live as if we're just monotheist or tritheist at best three gods or one god usually it's one god and that one god is tagged along by three others and those three gods begin to look like look like whatever it is you project on them in other words the god you have formed in your mind the god you've created in your own image and your likeness your ego your biases um your narcissistic tendencies the things that you don't want to let go of it's become easier instead of taking up your cross to follow him it's become much easier for us to say i don't want that so instead i'm going to create a god of my image and then i'm going to live up to that standard well you know you always let yourself down and that's the reason why you think god lets you down because god will never let you down and the moment you think god's let you down you probably most likely just projected the image of god that either looks like yourself or looks like your father who abused you or your mother who treated you wrong you or some person in authority you project upon god um the frailty and the problems that's still present within the human condition today but that's not what god looks like we have to find and we have to apprehend a much more Christ-like God so that we learn that God's beyond us. That's what holiness means. Holiness doesn't mean I don't drink or chew or go with those who do. Holiness does not mean that I dress a certain way and bless God, she's wearing short sleeves. She's a Jezebel going to hell. No, guys, please, let's get rid of the legalism. I promise you true Christianity is a call to a laid down life. It's a call of surrender. It's a call to say, oh, kicking and screaming, God wants you to die. The gospel is about taking up your cross. Why? So that you can share in his life. We all have this cross, perhaps not to bear by ourselves always, but we have a cross to bear nonetheless. 
And ultimately, there's a part of us that we have to allow to become the Isaac on the altar of sacrifice, knowing that God himself will provide himself a lamb, because the Isaac in our life ultimately may look much more like our ego today, look much more like our our prejudices and our biases and the things that we just think are necessary, things that we think are needed, things that we think are important, that if we just wait a little longer, and if you don't do something about it today, if you don't ask God to give you the light today, you're going to get to the end of your life and say, wow, I wasted all this time. I wish my life away, wishing for a better time, wishing for a better moment, wishing for a better opportunity. And there's no time like the present. There is really no, because this is where God is. God who is omnipresent is in the present at all times. God is in the present moment, in the present time, at all times. So to see God is to slow down to the speed of time. Future tripping makes you numb yourself to the present conditions of your surroundings. And in your mind, you go to a place that's in fantasy, that's in imagination. And you erect strongholds because now you think you know the way something's supposed to look or the way something's supposed to pan out. But it usually never does the way you think. So you have to draw your focus out of the so-called future, not a real future, but one you are hoping or one that you're worried about or one that you have become anxious about. You draw yourself out of that and you center in and say, Lord, for me to know you is for me to face myself. I'm going to say that again, and let me check my internet connection because it just told me it was unstable. Make sure it's connected to the right one here. Oh, yeah, it's connected. We should be good, hopefully. All right. Ah, give me a break. You did call. You did block a little bit, but you are okay now. Okay, I'm okay now. All right, so we have to learn how to deal with what we are today okay well, i'm talking about moving into the present to experience god but he's, you know to be honest with you and i want to be completely honest with you this isn't easy it's not hard either but it's not easy it's learning how to operate from a different field of vision please hear me beloved i promise you what i'm teaching you will change your life i could care less about fluff all I care about is that Christ is formed in you. Because that's where you're going to find joy, real joy, real peace, real happiness, life and life more abundantly. It's not going to come out of me hyping you. I've done that. Go to YouTube, type Shane E. Mason. There's hundreds, hundreds of videos of me preaching. And, and, and I'm not saying that God didn't use it, but it was about getting people in their emotions. It didn't work. At the end of that journey, I burned out. I was burnt. I, I was ready to throw. I, I didn't want no more of it. And it wasn't God's fault. It was me buying into the dog eat dog or the, or the horse race of trying to get on the top and stay there. And beloved, any form of effort it takes for you to get somewhere is going to require a consistent effort to remain there. If not, you're going to get knocked down. Sometimes it takes even more of an effort because there's always contenders coming up that wants to rise through the so-called ranks to become the next great you or the next great somebody. God's not called you to be somebody else. Sadly, we have modeled ministry based upon our favorite preachers. 
Oh, I've been Jacksonville, Florida. I've been to churches. I, the men did everything. they. Some of the men, they would do everything they could to look just like T.D. Jakes, but they didn't carry what Jakes carried because they're not Jakes. And Caucasians would try to everything they could to look like Rod Parsley or Benny Hinn, depending on their or Bill or Bill Johnson. I've seen a few of those. And Chris Valentin, you know, we begin to mimic our watches, our idols, because we don't know how to mimic the Christ. You don't find yourself by knowing somebody else. You find now we learn how to walk together, but first. You have to find yourself by knowing him. It is as you know him that you know, watch this, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The Father gives you the revelation, not because somebody told you, but because the Father told you. And when the Father tells you who Jesus is, Jesus will tell you who you are. He brings to you real identity. He brings to you real purpose. He shows you the path that you are to walk in. Some of you, God's shown you things since you were kids. You know that there's amazing things for you, visions and desires, godly desires, godly dreams. But yet you sometimes find yourself at a standstill wondering, well, how, do I, how do I get to this? So you think striving more is going to make it happen? Do you think reaching out to more contacts is going to make it happen? No, it doesn't work that way. It is the it is really truly the genius of Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does not want this generation. I don't care if you're a hundred years old or four years old. If you are alive today, you're in a generation, and God doesn't want this generation to continue in the past of destruction and darkness because what he winked at in past seasons he's not winking at today he is awakening a people we are in the greatest hour of awakening i believe since the first second and third centuries of early christendom i don't believe we've ever been in a moment where god is awakening people from every form of non-denomination to denomination to catholic to orthodox Russian Orthodox or Syrian Orthodox, God is awakening a people to the reality of a Christ consciousness. That Christ consciousness is not the New Age. I'm not talking about New Age Christ consciousness. I'm talking about Christ consciousness revealed in Jesus, revealed in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, so that you are learning how to become much more Christ-like in every your everyday uh, methods, your everyday living, your everyday job, your everyday uh, occurrences and experiences. Verse 3 says, and many people, this is Isaiah 2, many people, peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. So here's the difference here. Instead of us trying to go to other mountains and take them over, we begin to learn how to live as a community of people within the kingdom of God. Well, we don't like that because we think that we're just supposed to go do whatever and then just kind of have our little little membership going on at a local church on Sunday morning. People see me, say, what church are you going to, brother? Uh, let's not talk about that right now because I don't have time to dismantle the deception that you have 
believed for so many years, so ingrained in your mind that you will defend it with everything. You will defend lies. That's what a stronghold is. Weapons over warfare are not carnal. Mighty through God to pulling down a strong strongholds. What is a stronghold? It's when you believe something that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's a speculation. It's an ideology. It's something that you have believed to be true, even though it doesn't hold any truth to it. And you defend the lie because behind it is darkness, and the darkness doesn't want to be exposed. And the only way light exposes darkness is for you to uh, accept the fact or the possibility that you just might be wrong. You've been wrong before, but we don't like to be wrong. So we would rather be right than be correct, right in our own mind, get people to agree with our rightness. But our rightness could be stemmed in a in a deep, 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 dark, 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 dark level of obscurity. Of just falsehood, lies, and deceptions, and we we defend those because we would rather look good to people. Come on, Saul, when Saul had the kingdom rent from him, but yet he convinced Samuel, just take me out before the people so that I will appear to look right to the people. Well, that's why we don't have honest pastors today. They are afraid to be honest, open, and transparent. And I can't help, I can't, ha I can't help, but I can't, I can't halfway blame them. Because so many ministers have been been infected by sheep bite, you know that's toxic. Meh, uh, carnivore sheep. They they like to devour one another. So in so in one aspect, I can't hardly blame them. But there's going to have to come um, a spirit of courage, a spirit of courage upon the ministers and leaders to do what's necessary to make the transition out of obscurity and deception and uh, secretism. And learn how to become the salt and the light of the world. And to be light means we become honest. We become transparent with one another, transparent with ourselves. And that's the fear. That's what's keeping many people from having a walk with God that matters. One that actually matters so much that is it will bring forth or you will begin to ultimately reap the benefits of transgenerations transgenerational consciousness becomes the front and center of your life then you will know that what you do today is not for you but it's for the next generation and the generations to come so that when they get here they got something to stand on instead of having to sort through all our mess because we were cowards and we wouldn't deal with it it takes courage to tell the people you love that are not going the right direction that i can't walk with you any longer because i've seen now i'm not talking about doctrinal differences here i'm talking about one part one group of people who remain and des desire to remain in a darkened area and those who have seen something that has changed them converted them they have seen light and it takes courage to stand up to these people and say i love you I wish to God I could walk with you and you could walk with me in this, but I got to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus means together we learn to follow him as a family. Culture begins to develop out of family and out of culture we begin to develop an authority. And that authority comes because we have strength in numbers and that authority is the reclamation of all that belongs to the sons and daughters of light. That reclamation brings forth civilization, kingdom civilization. Kingdom civilization ultimately of a conquest brings forth kingdom colonization. So the kingdoms of this world experientially become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. We keep reading here. We read that the nations will stream to the mountain of God's house. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in paths, that, and that we may walk in his paths. 
his his paths. Remember the straight gate, the narrow path. We walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion, not the law of Moses, but the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We are the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. Hebrews chapter 12. Read it. Don't take my word. I'm not talking about replacement. You know, I, you know, I, maybe we haven't had those people who have been taught that way that's watching, but they will be here and they have been here. Don't think that I'm talking about replacement theology. I'm not talking about the church replacing Israel. I'm talking about through the, the flesh of Jesus Christ, his, Flesh being rent, rent the middle wall of separation, the, the the veil, so to speak, which represents not just not just the connecting of heaven and earth into one, but also the middle wall separation, according to Ephesians two, taking of the Jew and the Gentile, Jew, that Jews being Israel, and all of the commonwealth and promises to Israel, and all of the Gentiles, which is everybody else. When that wall comes down, he makes of the two one new humanity. So I'm not talking about replacement. I'm talking about renewal. So the old covenant is a renewed covenant. So he comes not to do away or to annihilate, but he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. Christ is the fulfillment. He is the expression. He is the visible representation, the exact. You know what exact means? Think about it, exact. So it's exactly the same, only different. No, it's not exactly the same. He is exactly the same image of the Father. So to know the Father is not to know what those wrote about in the Old Testament in their darkness. They wrote in mystery. They prophesied things they didn't understand. And God used the vehicle of human agency because he always does what he does on the earth through humanity. He uses the frailty of human agency to hide Christ within the recorded history, wisdom literatures, and prophecies of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, thinking that in them you'll find eternal life. But it is those scriptures that speak of me. So until you see Jesus in the scriptures, you don't see Jesus in the scriptures. Simple, right? So to know God is to know the Son. To know the Father is to know the Son. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. You don't get your image of God in the Old Testament canon. You get your image of God through Jesus. Jesus reveals who the Father is. Jesus reveals who Holy Spirit is. And we learn to allow the image of Christ to transform us. So that brings us to, let me finish this up right here. And I'm going to um, jump into, we'll probably hammer on this for a few weeks, but we're going to jump into Matthew chapter five in just a moment. Verse four, that he will judge. This is Jesus. He will judge between, remember the father does not judge. The father has committed all judgment to the son. He will render decision. He will judge between the nations. He will, and what is judgment here? John clears this up in, in St. John's Gospel, chapter 1, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. So judgment is when your darkness is exposed. Yep, yep, right, right. That's the Bible. That's not Shane Mason's commentary. That's St. John, John the Apostle. 
Watch what happens. He's judging between nations for what reason? So that he can render decisions for many peoples. Why? So that the ultimate end game is they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, weapons of warfare becomes becomes tools of the harvest. Weapons of warfare become the tools of the harvest. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. War, boom, over with. This is the, the, this is the purpose of the Prince of Peace. That's why John was saying First John's, believes chapter 2, he says, For this purpose the Son of God was revealed or manifest, unveiled, so that he will destroy, loose, dissolve the binding contracts, the binding agreements of this of the Satan, the Satan who had mankind bound under the fear of death and condemnation, fear, the tactic of the enemy, deception, the tactic of the enemy. These things are undone. What Adam submitted to in Genesis chapter three is the doing of Adam. Jesus undoes Adam. The cross in one way, in a mystical sense, the cross goes all the way back to Adam and undoes what he did before it ever happened. Why? That's how the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus, who's omnipresent, he is God and he is man. Very God of very God. He comes to show us what it, when you see Jesus, you know what God, then you know what God looks like. And when you see Jesus, you know what humanity is supposed to look like. Jesus is the perfect image of both God and human, both divine and human, both the Father and the Spirit and all of humanity. Jesus is the perfect example, representation, and image of the divine and the human. So to see Jesus is to see a whole new humanity, but to see Jesus is also see the Father and the Spirit. I hope you're following me. I hope you're tracking here because this is the gospel. This has been lost, but it's not been lost in the sense of recorded history. It's been lost in our churches. It's been lost in our in the way we worship. Let's get everybody in. We got to have three services, 45-minute service, three quick songs, quick tithes, quick offering. Uh, let's give our little sermonette. Everybody comes and sits. It's, it's weak. It's, um, it's anemic. It has no power. It has, no, it has a form of godliness. It denies the power. Why? The power is to Christ. Holy Spirit only empowers those who have come into the Christ. So until you come into the Christ, through the Christ, you see the Christ, not only in yourself, but in all things, you don't have power because God does not back your word with signs and wonders. You don't have miracles. You fake miracles because you don't have authentic miracles. You fake signs and wonders because you don't know how to produce real signs and wonders. You quote Mark 16 that these signs will follow those who believe. But yet you think that if you preach what you think the gospel is, God's supposed to back you. He's not going to get on your side. The Father and the Son and the Spirit will not repent. What does that mean? We think, I will not repent. Well, what does that mean when, he, when we read that in the Old Testament? It means that he has no need to change his mind because in him there's no shadow or variance of any form of turning. He doesn't turn aside. So he doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. His mind doesn't change. He's immutable. It's us who's fickle. It's us who becomes um, becomes completely, totally corrupted from the, the from the the perfect image of God that we were created in to reflect. So we have to learn what does it mean to be a Christian? Then what does it really mean to be a Christ-like one in the earth? 
Yeah, I find it amazing. I'll have people call me a heretic because all I preach is Jesus. When in the H-E double hockey sticks did the gospel get accused of being heretical when it's preaching nothing but Jesus? Who do you worship? Who do you think saved you? Do we just, and beloved, let me go ahead and put a disclaimer in here. There are people today teaching, many people teaching, that Jesus' teachings is the law of Moses on steroids, and therefore it was never meant to be kept. That the law that Jesus teaches, the message of Jesus in his earthly ministry is based upon, watch this, is based upon the Old Testament. And when Jesus died on the cross, we no longer have to, this is demonic. If you hear anybody tell you we don't follow the teachings of Jesus, just follow Paul, it is demonic. It is completely and totally satanic in its form, its inception, its conception, its birth, everything about it. You do not dismiss Jesus. If you do, you're not his follower. Because to be a follower of Christ means you follow his teachings. To be a follower of Christ means that you live a life according to what he has taught us. So let's begin to look at the most important thing Jesus ever taught. And we're not going to get very far in it, but we're just going to we're going to skim skim into it a little bit. We'll be back up on this um, either Sunday um, or next Tuesday. All right. So what were what we had? Okay, let me let me let me um, lay groundwork here first. Do you, beloved, realize that when you read the Bible, when you read the scriptures, do you? I need you to understand, if you do or if you don't, please understand, the original scriptures do not have verses and chapter breaks. There's no one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, verse by verse by verse. Those are there to help us reference, help us to find to reference. They're not in the original language, so there's no chapter breaks here. So to read the scriptures is to read it first. Watch this. You have to first read it as a story, as a narrative. I'm teaching you how to read your Bible. Right. The ancient way. The orthodox way. You don't read it scripture. by. You don't cherry pick. That's what we call it. Or proof texting. You don't cherry pick the verses that you like. You can't take that verse and say this is what it means if you don't know what the story is. If you haven't read the narrative, you don't know what that verse is referring to. So, And I've, I'm guilty of it. I've done it many times. I'm learning more and more how not to do it. I'm learning more and more how to be faithful in interpreting the text. So, Because I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to give an account for what I say. And I fear God in that way. Not that he's going to damn me, but I don't want to stand before him. And he asked me, why did you tell my people that? Why didn't you teach them how to read the Bible? Why didn't you show them the way it is to be understood? Because you can't proof text. You can't just open, close your eyes, open your Bible, take a finger, go boom. Because I heard one time that somebody did that looking for a word and they read it and it said, and Judas went out and hung himself. And then immediately, I don't want that verse. Let me find another one. Turn to another place. Look for another verse. Go back and read. Uh-oh. This verse says, Go ye likewise and do the same. The Bible's not a fortune cookie, beloved. 
is not a horoscope. It is the inspired, inscripturated Word of God. And so to understand the scriptures, you have to read it as a story, a narrative. So you can't just pick something out. You have to find out what's going on from start to finish. With that said, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Leading up to Matthew 5, Jesus, we see a genealogy. We see the, the encounter of Mary and the dreams and Joseph's dreams. And the angel comes to Mary and, all, and she says, be it unto me and and then we see the birth of Jesus. We see the ministry of John the Baptist. We see the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And keep in mind, beloved, this is our journey as well. Cruciformation. And when you go into the place of hiding, don't be surprised that you say, wait a minute, I hear a voice speaking to me, but it doesn't sound like my father. Because sometimes it is the valid voice of accusation that's going to come at you. Why is it important to follow Jesus first into the wilderness of Matthew 4? Why is it important to find yourself in the wilderness like Jesus in Matthew 4? Because the Lord wants you to be an effective and faithful minister. But to be effective and faithful, you have to learn how to see experience and know the father the son and the holy spirit in your present moment but you know what else you find in the present when you slow down to the speed of time chronology tick tick when you learn how to become one with your breathing and even one with the very beat of your heart that means that you had to follow the example of jesus in prayer that means you have went to a secret place so that you shut out all distractions and there you enter into the cloud of unknowing in one allegorical or metaphorical sense which i would say to you that that's the journey but before you can enter into the cloud of unknowing this is what moses did moses ascends sinai for six days and six nights he sits outside of the cloud on the seventh day moses enters into the cloud of unknowing into the glory God creates in six days, the seventh day you enter into the Sabbath rest. Six is the number of man, which means you have to come to the end of yourself to enter into the fullness of his life. You come to the end of self, the end of ego, the end of your personal desires, your personal dreams, your personal wants. You come to the end of these things, and then you are able to experience the life of Christ in you. But you don't experience the life of God, the life of Christ, the life of living and walking in the beautiful Holy Spirit. You don't experience that until you come to the end of yourself. So prayer initially is about entering into the place of secret, silence. Prayer should not be primarily about you talking. Jesus says that's what the scribes and Pharisees do. Your father's not impressed by how much English vernacular you can spit out of your mouth or whatever language you speak. God is not impressed by any of these things. Matter of fact, he calls it absolutely hypocritical because we think God's going to reward us based on what we say. But prayer is not about how much you say. Prayer is about learning how to communicate with the divine. Prayer is about learning how to hear the Father speak to you by the Spirit through Christ, and it is learning how to communicate to the Father so there becomes relationship or communion, co-union, co-unity, union in the Spirit, union in the Father, union in the Son. But you have to come to the end of yourself. So many people don't like prayer like this, or they rather be intercessors, which is necessary. 
vital, needed. We need intercessors. But we need even more than that. We need men and women who learn how to enter into fellowship, the koinonia of the Spirit. That is the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. We have to learn how to abide so that we know the workings and the energies, the nature, the character, the, even the personality of who our God is so that we don't misrepresent him in our prayer. Because if we don't know him first, yet we try to be intercessors, we may be praying amiss. We may be really just trying to get God to do whatever the heck we want him to do for us or for other people, not even knowing his mind on the situation. Intercession should not be absent from the mind of God. You, How do you intercede for something you don't know what God's will is about? You may know God's will, generally speaking, but what about the individual or the situation or the nation? Or so you have to learn what God's mind is about something before you even try to approach that in intercession. So my prayer, I used to be all about intercession. It was huge. It was a big deal. These days, I'm learning that none of that ultimately, none of that let me see what's going on right here. Lona mostila brosto lebekiando de bia stando stekadni. Abba, I thank you that the joy of the Lord is my strength, and in your presence is fullness of joy. I bind this harassing spirit in the name of Jesus. I command it to silence his mouth. You be silent. Be removed in the name of Jesus. And I'm asking you this day that as this subsides, show yourself. Make yourself known. Reveal the life and the love and the light of your son in this man, in Jesus' mighty name. Pour out your precious, precious Holy Spirit on him. Baptize him in love. Baptize them in kindness. Baptize them in your presence. Turn the lights on, and all demons flee in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, I'll stay. Give you praise, and I give you glory, and I give you honor in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We bless you. We bless you. We bless you. We bless you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I give you praise and glory. I give you praise and glory. And people, you need to understand that when I take authority over demons, I'm never calling a person a demon. I wouldn't dare do that. They are a child of God, even if they don't know where they are or what they're doing. But what I do know is I know the love of God. I know the life of God that I've experienced in my life and the enemy, rather whatever it's working through in a vessel, will resist the cross because it is the cross that dismantles all demonic authority every time. Okay, let me continue on. So what we're looking at is that Jesus is coming out of the, out of the wilderness, 40 days of fasting, 40 days of prayer. There he has to become silent. Why? Because he needed to change? No, because he's showing us the way. The enemy tried him just like he tried Adam. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same place the enemy's going to try you. The same place you've given heed to over and over and over again. It's the tree of, of knowledge, good and evil. Making your own decisions, trying to do the right thing, but always doing things also that things you just want to do. 
This is the tree of knowledge. And this is what Jesus is up against. And he overcomes, he undoes what Adam did. We follow him in the same way because here's what happens in the place of prayer. When you learn how to enter into silence, you shut down all sound and visual stimuli that would uh, distract you from God's presence. And in that place, you learn to concentrate or meditate on him. And what this means, beloved, is that you first have to come to the end of yourself in order to find him. And what that really means, um, um, am I am I on here where I can, um, let me see what I can do right here, because um, we will not. I, I, I will, did put you as a host. Yeah, he's, um, there we go. All right, because that's not going to happen. Um, I won't put up with that at all. I'll not put up with religious spirits coming in this, this room and um, trying to say, trying to cause um, division. And it's amazing. In order to tell you, when, when you begin to experience warfare, especially when you're teaching or preaching, it lets you know the enemy does not like it. And I'm not calling the person the enemy. I'm saying we are influenced. And don't say you can't be. Peter could have the revelation of who Jesus was. And then a few verses later, Jesus rebukes him as Satan. Why? Because he resisted the cross. The mission, the purpose that Jesus came into the earth was to die on the cross, to be buried, and to rise again. All right, so as we're progressing here um, and we're moving forward here, we find out that it is where we come to the end of self that we find him. If you don't believe me, learn how to pray in watchful silence. What did Jesus say to his disciples when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Could you not watch and pray for an hour? What does that mean, watch and pray? It means that you enter into silence and you become watchful of the moment. You can't watch the future and you can't watch the past. You can only watch the present. But in order to really become watchful in the present, it takes deep healing from all of your emotional trauma, all of your misgivings and mishaps that's happened to you, the abuse, you have to be healed. And these are things ultimately, beloved, that we have, we have, um, we have really regressed and suppressed and suppressed and suppressed and suppressed these things that we don't want to deal with them because we're trying to put on a happy face and live life. Because to deal with them, to deal with the pain, the hurts, and the failures of yesterday means that you've got to, um, you ultimately just, you're going to have to, let me see if I close this right here out. One second. All right. So ultimately what that means is you're going to have to deal with the things that you've buried. You have to confront, face the issues. If you learn how to read the scriptures, beloved, you're going to find out immediately when you see, say, for example, Jesus sends the apostles in a boat across the sea. He goes up to a mountain and pray, and then Jesus comes walking on the water. They get afraid, and they think it's a ghost. He gets into the boat. The waves cease. The storm ceases. Or Jesus is asleep in the boat, and the wind is contrary, and it's trying to um, capsize the boat, the fellowship. And they wake Jesus up say, Lord, do you not care? We're going to die. We're going to perish. And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the storm. The seas come, becomes um, calm. The storm ceases. 
and immediately they're on the other side. What's going on here? We don't confront the storms that we face in our life from the outside. We confront the storms we face from the inside. That means that you go to the center of your anxieties, you go to the center of your worries, your concerns, your embarrassments, your shame, your guilt, and you bring it to the cross. You got to go there. You got to allow the Spirit of God to lead you on a journey into the depths of your human core so that all of those things that you carry from your past, even unforgiveness and the feelings of rejection, this is why deliverance comes and deliverance ministry happens even among those who are Christians because we've not been catechized into the body of Christ. We simply make a decision and then we get baptized on a third Sunday or fifth Sunday sometime when it gets warm. This is false. Catechism dealt with deliverance. They would lead people in formation, spiritual formation, and they would exercise demons from them. What does that mean? It means that they brought people through a place of healing so they could deal with the things and the hurts and the issues that they buried deep inside of them. But because we don't do that, people are still walking around today with all kind of pain. And then you don't you don't know how to be a good Christ-like one. Why? Because you can't be a Christ-like one if you have not yet learned how to surrender your whole being to the cross-shaped life. That's what Jesus said, if, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself daily. Let him take up his cross and then follow me. You don't follow him without the cross. You don't come after him unless you've taken your cross. And that means, what does it mean to take up your cross? It means that you learn how to find and enter into the darkness that you have hidden from, you know, nothing's hidden from God, but you've hidden it from God. You even hide it from yourself. You have, but the Lord knows exactly where it is. He knows exactly what's going on. And here's the good news. When you learn how to go into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights, this is just a number here 40 deals with a generation uh, so it's, it's a completion when you learn how to deal with the generations of iniquity in your life because you're a product of a generation that came before you you're a product of the generations that lived out their lives before you did and now you carry the pains of your ancestors you you carry the the despair or the shame or the never good enough or i am not and the, i'll never be or i want to be but i'm just not you have to learn to deal with these insecurities because if you don't you'll always look for others on the outside to validate these insecurities to make you feel better about yourself but how's that been working for you because all that is, is a roller coaster ride is up and down up and down this is why we got these prophetic junkies these people that are always wanting to find somebody who will give them another prophetic word thinking that that's going to fix them or make them feel better but it's just a quick fix that does something to the dopamine um, that's in your mind, your brain. It releases a trigger of reward. But at the end of the day, you're still back in the same spiral. You're still back in depression. You're still back in anxiety. You're still dealing with all of the things you've always dealt with. Why? Because a Band-Aid doesn't fix it. The gospel, the cross, is about going to the innermost and the uttermost depths of all of your brokenness. It goes to the depths of your woundedness and from the inside out, he begins to heal it all. He begins to piece it all back together. But for that to happen, it's not its not about a magic wand. You can get into a prayer line and you can have the most anointed men and women of God on the planet lay hands on you. And I'm not saying you won't get nothing from that, but I'm saying it's not going to deal with the issues because this is not about, listen, 
what I'm saying here is not just about getting it healed. It's about the journey of healing because it is the journey of healing. It's the journey into wholeness and the journey through wholeness that forms you, makes you into who you're going to become so that you have tools to help others in their journey to wholeness and their journey into healing. So the cross is about finding the truth about what you have suppressed finding the truth about what you don't want to think about or even remember and then you encourage and boldness by grace i say by grace because you're not alone beloved you're not doing this alone jesus is with you every step of the journey you begin in prayer to come into the depths of the things that you don't want to think about the thoughts that cross your mind that aren't just thoughts that are random but thoughts that come into your mind when you get quiet the ideas that you think about the past hurts and traumas um all of the things that have just hurt you and, and wounded you and, and broke you through your life, these things are not going to get better on their own. You have to learn to present them to Jesus. You find them as you enter into a place of silent prayer, as you begin to enter into the stillness of the now. Before you see him, you see yourself. And you may feel bruised and broken, but Jesus says a bruised a, a bruise reed he will not break. What does that mean? He means that he's going to be very gentle with you in your hurt. It means that he's not going to break you when you're already bruised. He's going. He's the great physician. His love for you is to heal you. His love for you is to make you complete in him so that you can know him. And by that, we know who we are and we know who each other is. The beauty of the gospel is to follow him in death, burial, and resurrection into the dark place, into the place where you are scared. Listen, to be scared of something doesn't mean you're filled with fear. To be scared of something means simply that you have to take faith, lay hold of faith, and allow faith to be how and why you trust the God you serve. But if we think that God wants to hurt us, then we'll never trust him because all we do is feel shame and despair and regrets. But when we learn that the Father is exactly like Jesus, then we know that he's not going to judge us to hurt us. His judgment is mercy. His judgment is grace. His judgment is wisdom. His judgment is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit's not killing you or in that way or torturing you or punishing you or condemning you. That's not the fruit of, of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self control we're on a journey to becoming and beholding him that means we have to deal with the issues not alone but by grace this is why we go into watchful silence and so many people beloved when you learn when you start practicing silence listen to me when you start practicing silence you're not many people shy away or run from it why because before they experience god they first experience the unresolved issues of the heart 
Moses come to the end of himself, day six. On the seventh day, he enters into the glory. So as you learn to trust him, that the Father is gentle with you. He's not a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering torch or flame he will not quench. He's not going to put your fire out. He's going to rekindle it. He's not going to break you. He's going to heal the bruise. This is he was what? He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are made whole or healed. We have been healed. This is not a name it and acclaim it. This is not a magical wand. This is the process of becoming who you already are. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until we start learning, we, we're going to have to, in the coming days, beloved, learn how to live our lives. We have to memorize. We need to get it in our mind, our hearts. Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. So Jesus comes down off the mountain. He starts healing everybody. Crowds are following. When you get to chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Now, these are the Beatitudes. There's nine Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes begin with the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? We're always trying to become super spiritual. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Interesting, um, a, a well-respected and well-renowned Greek scholar um, would tell you that the word blessed here doesn't just mean blessed like, well, I feel blessed today. No, blessed here is more about ecstasy. Um, as a matter of fact, um, in um, Yale University put out this New Testament um, by a gentleman, a Greek scholar. Interesting how he translates the word to, as blessed. He uses the word, um, I don't want to mess it up, so let me pull it up real quick for you. Right here. He uses the word blissful instead of blessed to be a better trait. So he's blissful or the poor in spirit. Okay, so what that actually means in, in the Greek it actually means um, the divine life. It means it means the life of God or the divine life. So this Greek scholar here translates the Beatitudes like this. The divine life are for those who die to the demands of the ego. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Translates. This translates the divine life or you're blessed when you die to the demands of the ego such people will inhabit the kingdom of god number two i'll, I'll break these down more into following ways we're gonna i'm just gonna go over them now and start bringing this to a close number two the divine life is for those who live through tragedy and suffering Woo! this is the law of the kingdom No, you can't. You say, well, I can't do that. You you can because you have grace to it, but it requires slowing down and learning how to practice watchful silence so that God can put his finger on the things that he wants to talk to you about. So silence is about surgery. 
silence is about birthing. Adam was put into a deep sleep, and the woman's take it out. Okay? The promises of what God has told you is going to come from you. It's going to come from the place of becoming silent. Now, I'm not saying there's not a time to speak up, not a time to pray loud, not a time to take authority. Of course there is. But what I'm after here for you is you becoming whole, free, experiencing liberation and freedom unlike anything you've ever experienced before, free from sin, bondage, and cycles that you find yourself in repeat. No more of that. Those days are coming to an end quickly for the sons and daughters of God. Number two, the divine life is for those who live through tragedy and suffering. Such people will be conformed. I mean, excuse me, such people will be comforted at a deep level. Number three, the divine life is for those who bring their passions under control. For goodness, it is such people who will inherit the earth. The divine life is for those who hunger and thirst for justice. Such people will be fed to the full or righteousness. The divine life is offered to those who are gracious and merciful. For such people will be treated in graciousness and merciful in a merciful manner. The divine life is given to those whose home is clean on the inside. Talk about this body. That's blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay? The divine life is given to those whose home is clean on the inside. Such people will know the presence of God and see his face. <laughs> Woo! Let's talk about the house cleaning, guys, what I'm talking about. Yeah, this I'm not talking about what you need to do to get to heaven. Talk about what you need to do to experience God in the now so that we become the Christ-like ones in the earth. The ones that become the testimony of Jesus, which is the true spirit of prophecy in a manifest form in a collective body of believers. Yeah, because you're never going to truly want it. You'll never die for this gospel until you are willing to live for it. You don't act like you would die for it when you won't live for it. When you truly live for it, then you're ready to die for it. It's not the other way around. The, what got this gospel? Matthew 5 through 7, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. We have dismissed this. Mike Jones asked me if I had a mere study. Of, yes, yes, sir. I actually put a, you know, in a, unashamedly. He's a phenomenal Greek scholar as well. And I unashamedly got it. And I have actually, I actually put my own book cover on it. I put a, a nice um, cover on it. I don't know what I did with it. It was right here in front of my face. Now I don't see it. Anyway, I don't need it right at the moment. So let, let's continue. I got sidetracked reading. Um, and let me read the, the number six again. The divine life is given to those whose home is clean on the inside. Such people will know the presence of God and see his face. Number seven, the divine life is offered to those who are makers and creators of peace. Wow. Divine life is offered to those who are the makers and creators of peace. Such people will be called the sons of God or the children of God. Number eight, the divine life is known by those who are persecuted for seeking justice or righteousness. Such people will know what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. Number nine, listen to this. The divine life is known by the people who are mistreated 
and who are misunderstood. They're misunderstood in their passion for justice and righteousness. It's these people that will inherit the kingdom because it was the prophets as well who were treated this way in the past. It's okay to be misunderstood. This is the Beatitudes. You know what these nine Beatitudes are? These nine pronouncements of blessings are? They are the journey into being human. Oh, God, let me say this right now. Watch this. I wrote this down last night before I went to sleep. This stuff was really starting to settle down into me. Watch this. I wrote this last night. We have totally underestimated the sheer genius of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the key to diffusing every world crisis. What's the key to diffusing every world crisis? The Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Not Don't just stop with the Beatitudes. You have to follow the train of thought of those nine Beatitudes, those nine blessings. Follow them and keep the context, keep that in the context of your mind as you read the rest of the verses going into chapter 8. So you read chapter 5, 6, and 7 with this in mind, so that when you read, enter the straight gate and the narrow path, for few be there that find it. Huh? Why? Because not a whole lot of people want to follow this. I'm telling you, read the commentaries from the Protestants. They'll tell you that Jesus never even intended you to follow this. What? This is the answer. No wonder why it's under such attack. Because this is the answer, answer to diffuse every human crisis. It is the order out of chaos. It is the light out of the darkness. It is the life out of the death. It is the restoration out of the deconstruction. The Sermon on the Mount is the key to diffusing every world crisis. The end game, as we taught in Isaiah to Isaiah 4, the end game must become front and center of every in every believer's mind. What is that? The beat their plowshares into um, beat their swords into plowshares and their pruning hooks into spears. I mean their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not rise against nation. They will learn war no more. How? Jesus gives us the answer to world peace. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be human. It is the recipe to slaughter one's own ego is the journey to theosis or divination or deification. It is the journey to becoming one with God, which means one with one another. The Beatitudes means to be, this is what is, is teaching us how to be a disciple of Christ. It's teaching us how to follow him. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not, watch this, please listen carefully. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not just speaking as the head of his church. He is speaking as the creator of the entire world. He is not telling us how to be Christians here. He is telling us how to truly be human. Theanthropos, the God man. To see Jesus, 
is to see the fullness of God in a fully human body. To see him is to see what it means to be fully God, and to see him is what it means to be fully human. He shows us what it looks like to be a human. And only truly human people are the people who know how to be led and how to walk by the Spirit. To try to divide who you are as a human, to divide that with what it means to be spiritual is Gnostic heresy, condemned by all of the saints from John the Beloved to Polycarp, Irenaeus. We can just keep moving forward if you would like. It was condemned by Athanasius of the 3rd and 4th century. It was condemned by Hilary of Poitiers. It was later on down the road. It's condemned by the hammer against the Arian heresy, Maximus the Confessor. What does that mean, Maximus the Confessor? Why do they give these guys names like that? It's religious, brother. Shut up. Don't say it. You don't, you're on dangerous ground, beloved. They're not a, Maximus the Confessor wasn't a confessor because he conf, people confessed sins to him. Maximus the Confessor was the confessor because they took him to kill him. They were going to kill him. He would be a martyr for Christ, and he kept courage in death. And they didn't kill him. He survived it. But yet, in the light of saying, you denounce what you've said about Jesus, or you die, and he would say, you may kill me. I will not denounce the life, which is the light of all mankind. Remember, until you live this thing for real, you will not die for it. You will not die for what you don't believe fully. You'll backpedal, you'll be unsure, and you'll say, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, conform into the image of his death. Maximus the Confessor, against the threat of death itself, took a stand and kept his faith. So they gave him the name Maximus the Confessor. He confessed Christ in the face of almost certain death. Let's stop talking about these people. You know what they did to Maximus, though? They cut out his tongue and cut off his right hand. And then they sent him his way. They exiled him, thinking that would shut him up against the Arian heresy. Thinking that would shut him up from writing, stop him from writing. He just learned how to write with his left hand. And he wrote some of the greatest works after that. Justin the Martyr. The one who brought true philosophy into theology. You know what it means that he was called Justin the Martyr? It means he died for his faith. He went to an early death along with two other of his disciples. They followed their spiritual father to death because he would not deny his faith. But yet we think we're better than these guys. We think we know more than them. We got more revelation. You're not even fooling yourself. You're sure not fooling anybody who's actually studied, who's given their life to understand these things. They set an example for us, and that is an example that we should honor, respect, even venerate, so that ultimately, ultimately, if we are ever faced with 
anything that looks similar, that we can keep our faith, we can stand strong. Having done all to stand, we stand, therefore, putting on the full armor of God. Amen. I'm done for today. I'm, we're going we're gonna to stay in this vein probably continue because there's so much depth and insight into this. And I will say this, he who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Amen. Let's see if Linda, I wonder if Linda's, Linda fell asleep or may have had to go visit the latrine or John or somebody bathroom. <laughs> no, I am here. I love the way you teach. I honestly do, Shane. You bring it out that people can truly understand. And we are so blessed to have you. I'm just trying to put my camera on, okay, guys? Like, I'm not, it's really early in the morning. It's dark here. <laughs> but, you know, I hope everyone understands. And if you don't understand, please type it into the Facebook comments or jump onto Zoom. And if you don't want to be um, known by um, anybody that you think that you're going to be embarrassed or, or anything, I am happy and Shane's happy and Sister Deborah's happy that we will close down the Zoom so you can have private conversation to get a deeper understanding what Shane is speaking. Because it's very important, like when Shane speaks, that we understand the word of God. You know, that is the most important. And that's not just Shane, that's for all of us. We need to understand the word of God. We need to understand who Jesus really is and what he's done for us. So we are here to pour into you all. We're here to make you understand what Jesus is all about and what the Bible is. Because the Bible is, there's no lie in the Bible. When you speak the truth out from the Bible, there's nothing hidden. And that's what Shane's doing. He's speaking the scriptures and he's bringing it out for everybody to get deeper understanding. Because there is so many people that don't really understand. There is so many people are being taught differently and God is opening up doors and doors are going to be open through Shane as well. And he's going to use him powerfully in different areas and all the speakers, you know, we don't have anyone really, well, actually none at all, praise the Lord, that people that speak not on nothing but the truth. We need to start pouring in and understand. So if you guys have questions, please put it into Facebook chat. If you want to come on Zoom, you're welcome to come on Zoom. I'm happy to have private, Shane's happy to have private conversations with you and we can pray with you. We can get deeper, and um, if you need to get deeper understanding what he just spoke today, we're happy to do that as well. And every time when Shane is on and if you have a question, we are happy to pour into you as well on privately. Just reach out 